Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. I mean, you have to be not to go because you you want to solve problems. I've seen so many people who left the country, went into international career because they had problems at home. Very different problems. Sentimental problems or whatever, you know. So leaving your country to go for an international career because you want to leave something, for me, is not a good approach. If you want to go in an international, it's because you want to discover something. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. All right, Gerard, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the Career Guide Podcast. We're so happy to have you here and for you to share your experience. What I always do with most of the guests is, of course, to ask the first question of how did you get started with your international career? Well, I started to, to work in the humanitarian field 33 years ago. At this time, really, to do a career, it was not really clear. You didn't have like a job description of, oh, I want to work on humanitarian field. Being French, uh, we had an organization called Médecins Sans Frontières, very well known in France. And to tell you the truth, I thought it was only for doctors, for medical doctors. And I realized that people could be logisticians, for instance, with Médecins Sans Frontières. And uh, so I was interested to be, you know, uh, try to be involved. Humanitarian field always interests me, but I couldn't at that time really put the name of I want to work as a humanitarian, uh, I want to do my career as a humanitarian, but this feeling to try to help, to be part of something, to participate to the society, to find, you know, try to fight against injustice was something really deep in me. So really by coincidence, one day, uh, really in a bar, I was talking with somebody and this somebody told me, ah, you know, Gerard, uh, there is people, not not medical doctor working with Médecins Sans Frontières. I said, oh, are you, are you kidding with me? I said, no, you can't. So I called Médecins Sans Frontières and they told me, yes, of course, we need people. We call that logistician. And even the name logistician 35 years ago was not really something, you know, you, you didn't have internet or whatever. So it was not by coincidence. I, I would say that I had this inside me wanted to work as humanitarian, but not putting really clearly what could be a career. So I called Médecins Sans Frontières. They were at that time very happy to have somebody like me because I had, um, I did many jobs before and uh, I was able to uh, 
be by myself, to administrate uh, a team. To so I started with with medicine sometimes that way. So it's it's really uh, by coincidence that I, I work with Médecins Sans Frontières because you know I didn't have any idea of uh, working for the UN, working for Oxfam or whatever. Uh, I came from a very small place in south of France, and 35 years ago you didn't have access to internet, to Google, and to see oh what are the best organization. You know you do didn't have that. You you just um, have to be on your own. So I think that I was lucky enough. That I started by, uh, uh, I think, one of the best NGO. And really, uh, I, I stay with them uh, 14 years. And I, I would say that one thing I really liked is um, in Médecins Sans Frontières, at that time, you were in charge to do anything else than medical attention. So, you know, build an hospital, dig well, do logistics, uh, buy things, find a house, have a car. So I had this good experience of being really exposed to so many things and at the field level, hands-on, not working at the HQ level, but really working with people. And you understand really the impact of your job is immediate because you have these people in front of you. And, uh, you know, when you see the first people dying because there is no water, because there is no food, because there is no medicine, there is no vaccination or whatever, you really very quickly realize why you must be efficient. So my university, to tell that, has been really on the field with an NGO, a medical organization. And after, after 14 years, I decided to move to the UN because it was time for me also to move to, to, to do something else. And this is why I started and spent 20 years of my life working with uh, the Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Well, that's fascinating. There's a couple of points I'd like to ask about in that, because you really got started before, you know, sort of the applicant tracking systems, the digitization yeah. of sort of the hiring processes and things like that. But for most people that we've interviewed, there's still this element of like, you have to know people, right? And you have to have a network, you have to understand, you have to, and, and surprisingly, a lot of people got started in their career by accident, much like you, you just sort of encounter somebody, you meet somebody, you're having a conversation and all of a sudden these opportunities come up. And so that's really sort of fascinating in that aspect. But when you're looking now and sort of reflecting on your your entire career and you're seeing how much it's changed, I mean, it's fascinating to hear you say you just called them, you know, and they would be happy to have you, which is just astonishing these days. How much has it changed in, when you're looking back? Well, I think that today I won't be able to go and walk uh, with um, to do the career I did if I would start today, exactly for the reason you say. Now, you need to have a master, you need to have a, a lot of academic background, you need to have, uh, and that's good. I mean, that's perfectly understandable. But at that time, whatever evaluating is also the fact that I had concrete experience. I had small, very small business company. I had a, a transportation company, a small one. I had, um, I was working with uh, young people with social problem in my city and employing them uh, with my company. So I had this kind of very concrete background, not academic one. And it was possible because I find it in me at that time that my concrete experience, I was 28 years old when I started to work with Medicine Sans Frontières. And uh, for 10 years, from 
from 18 to 28, I did my own business company, small business company in my village. This was not, you know, it was not a, a big one, but at least I did. I had a restaurant. I was uh, an antiques. I had a, a, a company. I was a photographer. I mean, I had so many. I tried to do so many things. And so that was something seen as an added value for this organization. Definitely, I think that today, my academic background was not good enough uh, because now they really want you. You know, there is a lot of university or schools teaching humanitarian job today. Uh, if you want to want to work with the UN, you must have at least a master. And of course, uh, it's more difficult. So what I did is um, because when I started to work with MSF, I didn't have the master. While I was with MSF, I stopped for two years and I did a master. So because you needed to have the key, I realized that, you know, having experience was not good enough. So one of my, my key uh, issue was to, to get this master. With that, I knew that that will be something that now people will ask if you want to work with. So um, th this is something, and, and the problem, uh, I see, not the problem, but the situation today is really that I've seen that now we have a lot of people, at least in the UN, working and coming with a very large academic background, but with uh, not this, you know, I'm talking about humanitarian work. I'm working with people. And, you know, it's very concrete. It's not complicated. You have to create a link. You, I saw in your website that capacity building, being with the people, you know, this empathy with people, solidarity is is key. And I think that by coincidence, who I am has this deep capacity to be empathic and working with people. And this is not something I've developed with academic work. I did develop that because I was working with people. So I think that that's a, a difference maybe today. So I'm not criticizing at all. I think it's good because that has been one of my, I would say, weakness, not having this academic background. I had to learn a lot of things by myself. And maybe I lose some opportunity. I lose some, you know, little by little from logistics that was very simple. I become more and more involved in political analysis. And really, I realized that I didn't have the tools to sometimes make the analysis. So today, after 35 years working, I think that I have this capacity to make analysis. But to be uh, totally um, honest, I think that I was a little bit slower than other because I had to learn. I didn't have the key. How do you do an analysis of that? How do you understand something? How do you, even when you are in a meeting with a, a, a minister, how do you take note? How do you transform those notes in something that will be a pro, you know, all these kind of things. So yes, I've seen the change, but I think it was not bad to have this, those people like me having also this concrete experience. I think we have... It's good to have a balance, at least for the humanitarian people. I, I really like those people who have started even being academic with a strong academic background, who have at least some NGO experience before going to the UN. I like those kinds of people because really you see a difference. Those people have been exposed to reality. I'm not saying that when you are working with the UN, you are not exposed. Of course you are. But definitely when you are with some small NGO, I mean, there is no other options. So this is a very good school 
at least for me, this has been very good school to, to learn on the field with people with reality. I, I agree. I, I think that when we talk about being in the field or being on a mission somewhere, it is like you said, it's a school, it's an education. It's an education yeah. because, yeah, today, um, all international organizations are largely master's degree organizations. Whether that's right or wrong, you need a master's degree to get in these days. Um, and that's pretty much across the board. But there, there's this element of and I think you've captured it where like, okay, now you have the education, but now you actually need to do the field work, right? So you need to balance the academic with the experiential and the, the practical experience of being in the field. So almost the application of knowledge, that academic knowledge in a field environment, because as you know, because you've been through many difficult countries, right? Um, from South Sudan and, and many other different countries in, in Latin America and, and really globally that it, it doesn't always work the way that we think it will, right? And there's always, the, you hit that cultural wall, that cultural understanding or the different dynamics, regional dynamics. And what we think is correct can often be just, you know, taken in a completely different way. So how is that field experience now? Because that's what we also hear very much and it's sort of rumored through the career community. You need to spend time in the field. You know, you shouldn't just go directly to New York, for example, or, or Brussels or Geneva. You should actually cut your teeth, so to speak, or you should get started in the field. What do you think about those ideas? Look, maybe uh, it's, it's interesting because in our conversation, we are talking about career. To tell you the truth, I never thought about career. When I started, uh, I, I started to do a humanitarian job. I was happy with that. It was a privilege. Imagine from my little place here, I was able to be in, my first mission was in El Salvador in 1989. I was in the middle of the civil war. And suddenly I was like, it was like in a movie. I was projected in something that totally new. I couldn't imagine. I saw the first people shot by, by a girl in my life. I never saw that. I saw kids in the street. I saw uh, people of the team working until midnight and uh, waking up at three o'clock in the morning And because we were in, a, in an emergency. And that was good enough for me. I didn't plan, you know. I was not, oh, my career will be next year. No, it was so full of intensity that uh, I, I, I really started to think a little bit of the, career, even after uh, being in the UN. Tell you the truth, when I started to work with the UN, you know you have level P4, P5, D1, D2. I didn't know what this meant. I really, I didn't have ID. So I applied to a job and this job was good because it was in Latin America and in Latin America, I thought I could bring some experience there. And after one of my friends said, oh, what is the level? I said, what are you talking about? You know, measure up for your career. You must know the level. You are P of L, a, a, a two or three. I didn't have any idea. So after I realized that, you know, you have a career, you have a level. But really for at least 15 years, the 15 first year, I wanted to continue to do my job. And uh, because maybe I was doing it well, I had no problem to, to find another mission. I never stopped. Never, never, never. I mean, I never had one month in 33 years. I never stopped one month, uh, unless for holidays, of course, but uh, having a job. And so career was not, was not really um, an issue. You know, it's, it's, it's a, in our conversation, I realized that, that in fact, uh, I, I didn't know. You have people coming 
very young people coming, and that's good also. Again, I'm not criticizing. It's, it's another way of seeing the thing where the career aspect is really very important. You know, oh, there is a plan. I, inst- I want to start P3. If I do that, they know perfectly the rule of the games. If I do two missions in a very hard duty station, maybe after I will have a HQ, I have to spend... Fun. I mean, I'm amazed. I never had neither the uh, knowledge of that nor the interest on that. And that's uh, something I've seen now. Young people arriving, but youngest people arriving, oh, they know perfectly, they know the rule of the game. You know, I didn't really. It was, but look, I work for, I stopped, I I retired officially 19 days ago. So I started, I was 28. Now I'm 62 and um, I never stopped. So I had a good career without having really a clear plan. But I've always been, I think, very professional and very committed to my job. Because at least humanitarian work is something, I mean, you know, it's uh, something deep in you. I mean, uh, things of people suffering and knowing that you have the privilege to be paid to help those people, uh, for me, was good enough. I, I know that it could look a little bit poetic, but in my case, I was re- the reality. I really, I was happy with that. Well, first of all, congratulations on your retirement. I did not know that. Uh, so yeah. congratulations. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I think there are some cases where we're very fortunate, right? There's some cases where we're very fortunate to be able to have that career where we just, it's, it's a natural path for us and we progress nicely through that. And it's something that genuinely appeals to who we are. And I think in many cases, it's, we're very fortunate to do that. I, I've been I would also say very fortunate and privileged in my life to, to be able to sort of work for a number of international organizations. And there's a point to where I think in your case and also to some extent in my case that we are able to exist beyond the organizations where we are sort of these uh, international career professionals. Right. So you 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 have an appeal across all domains. And because of this experience, because of the knowledge, because of the work that you've done, that, like you said, you you didn't have any real challenges because you were, you know, deeply involved in your work, you felt very much in touch with your work, and you were sort of progressing and taking these positions to where, I, I think, in, in many different ways, you were just viewed as this international career professional. And so then, it's sort of that merger of of what we enjoy to do, our passion plus opportunities, and it all just sort of flows nicely together. And I think it's yeah. it's very we're very privileged to have that, and to a certain extent. But for me, you know, it was uh, is. Um why I think personally and professionally, if I look back my life, I'm happy with my life. Really, what I did until now, I'm proud of what I did. It was not um, something big. I just tried to contribute to something, just tried to be part of something. I did some mistake. I had some success. I had a lot of failure from which I learned a lot. But really, I think I had, and many of my friends also, at this privilege of having this mix, you know, not only be dreamer, but be concrete. I need salary. I need to have money. I need to pay the study for my kids. I need, so I'm not a 100% dreamer. I'm also very realistic. But at the same time, there is some commitment. And for me, it's a luck to be working for humanitarian purpose. Is This is something beyond only me. You know, you have this feeling of, as I said, being part of. So I know that for people, it's, 
is uh, maybe not exactly the career they want to have. For me, it was important to maintain this balance, you know. And I give you an anecdote. I took a picture in, in 1991 in Mozambique of a kid starving. And so, you know, this classic picture of a very skinny kids with uh, the, the ribs here, you know, very, very. And this, I had this photo I took myself for almost 30 years in my office, always in front of my desk for 30 years. And that was my compass. This, they become, you know, even when I was teaching to people, training other people, I said, look, this, think about your career, of course. But this is my compass. Whatever I'm doing is also thinking that, you know, I'm paid and well paid. I receive a good salary to help people who have nothing. And this picture was the metaphor of why I'm involved and helping sometimes to manage my career, not only in perspective of having a promotion, having a bigger salary, having more power, having more, you know, I want to be the chief. I never be interested in that. By the way, for 20 years with the UN, I was a chief. I was head of office. I was head of a regional office, head of country office, head of a sub-regional office or whatever. So by coincidence, I was always with the UN head of office. So being in this position of leading, but it was not my interest and neither my intention. But this balance, you know, not to lose point of view. Why am I doing that? And now when I'm looking back, I'm proud of what I did. You know, in the mirror, in the morning, I'm not ashamed. Uh, and some, I, I know that I refused some promotion at a certain point of my life because I also tried to be consistent with my family. People are important, so my kids are important also. So at a certain point, they proposed me to have a very interesting position that will have been really my career will have gone that way. In a non-family station, when my kids were young and I say, no, thank you. And people told me, Shara, you are doing a big mistake. And you know what? 12 years after, I think I didn't hear any mistake. My daughter now is 23 years old. We have a very good relation. I still married with my wife. My son, 27 years old, is uh, proud of me. And, you know, we have a good family. What would I have done to, to go and to be promoted? Maybe I would have a uh, 1,000, 2,000 US dollar more per month and maybe lose my family. So uh, also this kind of balance with my private life. So my career, it was not imaginable for me to manage my career without having this balance between my private life, my initial intention, helping people, and at the same time, caring for Seems normal, you know, have a health insurance <laughs> to be able to pay the mortgage of the house, this kind of thing. But it was not something taking over the other one. It was always, uh, for me, it was important to have this balance. And that's always interesting because we, you know, there's a lot of discussion, maybe not so many insights, but there's a lot of discussion around starting international careers. But what nobody ever talks about is how do we manage these things? Um, and, you know, or just even manage, if we're not going to call it a career, the international lifestyle. Like you said, do I make this decision now with my family or do I take that assignment that's a non-duty family or a non-family duty station, right? And so these decisions we start making as we progress through our career, when you're younger, you can do it very easily. You can go nearly anywhere you want to go and you can 
you know, sort of take on these additional risks. But as you're three or six or nine years into these assignments, it becomes an issue of you start your life changes. You know, your your period in your in your life is, you know, you're at a different point and you have different decisions that you have to make. So it, it is which is why it's always interesting to have these conversations, because it's always sort of been the same sort of thought process and context with many people that I've talked to is like we all reach that point somewhere where you have to say, OK, those types of field missions, the high risk ones are not necessarily where I want to be anymore. I've progressed, I've matured, I've gained experience to where I need to naturally progress in my career as well to a different assignment. At, at the same time, you, my last assignment was in Mali, a non-family duty station and probably not the best duty station for French because for political reason, being French in Mali is um, could be a problem, you know, because um, relation between France and, and the Malian government and etc. But it was clear for me as soon as you know, uh, because for family reason, I decided to stay with my kids, my wife. But I said once the kids will be at the university and the college, I will be open to come back to non-family duty station, and I did it. But you know, I it was just a point of my life where when the kids were at a certain age, I say, I don't want to make this sacrifice, but it was not closing definitively a door because now after, you know, it was an opportunity for me to take over position in non-family duty station and to let youngest colleagues having kids to go in family duty station where I have been. For instance, in Panama, when I was a regional director for Ocha, it's a family duty station. So look, this is not for me now, it's for somebody else, maybe with a family. And for me, send me to Mali, you know? But it was like um, not closing definitively a door, but it was not for the career purpose because when I decided to come back on non-family duty station, really was too late for me to, to think about career for my age, you know? It's, it was too late, I should have done that before, but I mean, who care? Yeah, we have to make our own decisions, right? Um, yeah. That's and, you know, and talking about the international career and w working at the international, that was a, a, a team you, you started to discuss with me. It's, um, for me, has been the source of enormous privilege. I feel privileged. And I'm not talking about the work. I'm talking about the living, you know. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time in Latin America in our case. Uh, but I also live in Africa. I also work a lot in Caucasus at the time of Chechenia and this thing. I had the privilege to be living in so many countries that this was a privilege because you learn new culture, you learn new perspective. When you come back in France and people are talking about racism, and, uh, you know, you have been in the other side, so you come, and I add that, you know, every time we have a dinner with a friend of mine who stay in France, of course, I always bring a point of view they cannot have because they stay here. And yeah, and this, some, something, I mean, something I feel privileged to, the life, I'm not talk, even talking about the fact to be able to talk different language. You know, my English is not perfect, but you should have seen my heard my English when I left college when I was 20, 18 years old. It was dramatic. I was just able to say I want a beer, you know. And being in the field, 
even if it's not perfect English, but at least I can communicate. And I communicate with a lot of people with my average English, but good enough to be to establish. I've been able to speak in, in to learn uh, Spanish. I've been able to speak and learn Portuguese. This because I've been living. So this is a good side for me. Music, food, writing, painting, whatever, you know, that has been a privilege. Now, the, the dark side is that being far from the family, I do not have a brother or sister. So my mother is was in France and you saw her, I saw her once per year. You uh, feel not anymore part of the community in your village or your place because you have been out of. So it's not always pink, you know. Again, we come with a, a balance of things. Of, so sometimes it's very interesting and sometimes you are losing things. So now my, my mother, you know, since 19 days, she's very happy because I'm in France now. And uh, she, she told me, for instance, we never spent Christmas for 23 years together. So this year we were able to do that. So it's not a detail. It's very important, you know, for your mother to spend Christmas with their kids. And so this is a kind of sacrifice you do sometimes when you do working at the international. It's not only a question of work. It's also a question of your life. Yeah, and that's really that's really interesting that you bring that up. I mean, I, I feel largely exactly the same way, which is that, you know, I have gained so much from working internationally, just even in basic terms of perspectives. And, you know, my who I who I am today uh, versus when I started my career, you know, 20 years ago are completely different people. And you really feel that, like you said, when you go back home. You know, and you go back to your country or wherever you call home, right? And you go back to your country, let's just say that your country of origin, you know, and you are you are in your community again where you came from. And it is fundamentally very different. The perspectives are very different. And you just then you realize suddenly how different you have become as a person and how that international sort of lifestyle has has forced you to grow, right? To get outside your comfort zone, to learn new languages, to experience this new culture, to, to question everything that you've learned. Uh, and I think that's a, a significant value, but there is, like you said, there's a cost to that. And it, in terms of cost-benefit analysis, you know, it, it's, I feel that the benefits, of course, outweigh the cost, but you're absolutely right. There are prices that we pay for that. You know, and so I haven't been home home for me for, for I think, going on five years now. Now, of course, things like a pandemic and all those things like that complicate things. But it, it's absolutely right, because then it becomes an issue of, you know, if you're traveling far, then it's vacation time, then it's cost of tickets. It becomes all these other issues to logistics to try and get back. And then for how long can you be gone? And, you know, all sorts of issues like that. So that's absolutely I, I'm glad you brought that up. And I wanted to ask a question, which is. When you're looking at this now and you're you're reflecting upon now that you're you're newly retired and you're reflecting on upon 30 years if we were going to start talking about providing some tips or some advice to to those that are wanting to get started aside from trying to just get started in the field what should they be doing at their own personal level to either prepare for an international career or to you know get to better understand the communities they want to work in or even their say their career path if they want to be in in humanitarian affairs or humanitarian work what are some of the things that you would sort of advise them now as you reflect upon 30 years of international work i, I think that um, if, if you um, 
It's a difficult question because uh, it depends of, of really your personality. In. I mean, you have to be not to go because you, you want to solve problem. I've seen so many people who left the country, went into international career because they had problem at home. No different problem, sentimental problem or whatever, you know. So leaving your country to go for an international career because you want to leave something, for me, is not a good approach. If you want to go in an international, it's because you want to discover something. So you are not, uh, when I left, I had very good relation with my family. I had no problem, no divorce, nothing, nothing. I, I was not flying away problem. I wanted to discover. So I think that one of my recommendations, because I saw people like that, more uh, with uh, uh, NGO, I have to say, than with the UN, but it's just by coincidence. It's not a, a scientific statistic. It's just by coincidence, my life. But I've saw so many people who left their country of origin because they were imagining that going abroad will be better. The grass will be greener and the things will be better. And this is, for me, not a good approach. A good approach is you want to go not because it will be better where you are going or because you want to leave something or because you have a problem, but because you want to go, because you, you want to learn, you want to go to see the people, you want to really to bring something. So I don't know if you understand my point. It's, it's going for a positive point of view. I'm leaving because I'm happy, because I have no problem with my family, because I just want to leave. And not, it's not living, in fact. I, I want to, to go and be engaged on this work. People who are living, you know, really in that sense, cutting something. I mean, you feel these things with those people when they're in the international car, because in fact, they are not solving their problem sometimes, because the problem is there, there are their own problems. There are the people by, by, by flying away. Uh, so I, I would say that for me, that's one of the main recommendations I would do to, to, to somebody want to start. Just go because you are ready to go and not because you, you want to evade some problem you had at all. So maybe that would be one thing I would recommend. But the other thing is probably um, be, have the humility uh, of of knowing that when you come back, you have moved away, but people stay here. And I want to just tell you, maybe you, you went through this uh, also uh, kind of situation. My friends here in France, they don't care at all what I've been doing. They don't care. It's not interesting. So I come back, I remember my first mission in El Salvador. I was in the middle of a civil war. I was, you know, helicopter. I was fighting everywhere. I, you know, it was like to be in a movie. I came back after one year and I had a, a, a dinner with my friend and I wanted to say, no, after two minutes, say, oh, yeah. They say, oh, by the way, have you seen the last rugby game at the TV? I said, well, not interested because they were. And I was so frustrated. But really, I was annoyed with them. Really, and I understood that if I want to be part of this community when I come back, I have to go at their level. And is this not because they're lower or uh, no, no, it's, it's impossible for your friends, your family to understand through which kind of situation you have been. And it's, it's impossible. So if you have a frustration because 
you cannot tell the story when you are back. I mean, no, just come back. So when I come back, I never told no any, uh, to anybody what what is going on, what I'm doing. I, I came back from Mali for six months in Mali. No, and I asked my mom, "Oh, uh, 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 how is your garden today? Better?" No, uh, yeah. So we had conversation at their level, things or their center of interest. And I think I learned as initially that was the most frustrating aspect for me. I I, I felt and I was so pretentious. I was, you know. I've been an airway. I've been in a pot. You know, people were shooting at me. And that's the vibe. I saw. Now they don't care at all. This is not interest at all. So this is also the point. When you come back, be um, have a certain level of humility and listen to your friends and talk with them about what they want to discuss about. And, you know, your story. You know, I will have more probably, prob- probably more. Uh, if we have a dinner, you and me, I will probably, and I don't know you, but I will probably have more each team of, of conversation with you that I had with friends I know since uh, I was 10 years old. Probably, because you and me, we have been through. So what I've developed is a community of friends, people like you, like me, where we become really good friends with whom I can have this kind of conversation because I know, and we can't discuss about politics, we can discuss about uh, situation we particularly discuss about climate change we can discuss about you know this kind of thing i've been in my life for 35 years here i'm talking about the garden i'm talking about rugby i'm talking about uh, you know the wine they're producing there I, I, another kind of conversation it's not a question to be good or not good it's just other things yeah i, I had to laugh when i hear that because <laughs> it is it is very true uh in terms of you know when you do go back you've had all these just experiences you know and 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 your world has changed um but not everybody else's world has changed they still go to the markets and they still do you know monday through friday in an office and weekends off and they're not traveling and they've lived inside the same 10 or 20 kilometers their entire life and and it it, it can be honestly it is sometimes very difficult yeah it, um, <laughs> because i i you know after all these experiences of years and decades and then to talk about sports is is boring for me, you know, to a certain extent. I'm like, I have to force myself to sort of reacclimate to to be actively engaged in the conversation because I, you know, like you said, I just came from somewhere. Somebody was shooting at me and all these things, and I'm on the edge of conflict, you know, and and state warfare and all these things. And then it's just like, you know, do you want a cheeseburger? Well, yeah, okay, sure, you know, uh, it's it, it's hard. And I think this is sort of like the, the, the strange thing is it's sort of like the, the two lives that you lead sort of to a certain extent because, you know, there's this international community, the people we know, the shared experiences. We all sort of understand the emotional and, and sort of spiritual and personality changes that happen with all those things. And then you have, you know, your life, like the, the life of where you came from and how do you stay connected with home. And so it, it's actually, I think it, it requires effort and it requires effort to stay connected as well. Not only when you're at home and when you're you're talking with people, but it's also to, even when you're gone, like you just can't disappear for eight months or a year and then never say anything. You know, you have to maintain connection and connectivity. Yeah. You have to, to try and stay connected to the community somehow as well. But you know, there is something now very new for me and it's very new, of course, because I feel today as if I were, was in holidays. 
But in fact, I'm not on holiday, I'm retired. And this is something I'm trying to manage. One of the reasons why I am in uh, LinkedIn, why, um, we, because we, we connect through this uh, network, why I'm still um, in contact with people from university, for whatever, is because um, I know that this part of 35 of my life, being intellectually involved in making decisions, in analyzing humanitarian situation, in, I think, having uh, uh, some competency on some issue because I did this job for many years, and suddenly, be not for one month, but permanently involved in talking only about uh, uh, rugby, uh, food, or whatever, is something I, I do not want to have. This is why I want to continue to be involved, but here, with a balance. I do not want to be a consultant. I do not want to spend my life working now. I have other issues. Uh, behind me, you have painting. This is some of my painting. So one of my lobby, hobby is, is to do painting, you know? So I want to continue. I have a, a workshop and I want to do that. I have a, a, a house and a garden. I have friends all around the world. So my life will be busy with things. I do not need even financially to be a consultant. But I want to keep involved, you know, a few weeks a year with uh, somebody like you teaching to students or, um, you know, because I know that for the, the conversation we are having, that I can bring something to people because of my experience, but also this can bring something for me to maintain a certain balance. And, uh, you know, it's something I'm, I'm looking for to continue. And this podcast today we are doing, my first uh, activity in a post-activity uh, <laughs> post, uh, uh, is just a, a testimony of that because for the first time in 20 days, I'm talking about things like that with somebody I do not know, but who understand me, you know? And you are the first. My neighbor is not reading here, you know, it's not like, you know, but my neighbor is, doesn't care about who I am. And it's, it's normal. But, you know, I need to have this kind of conversation and to, because uh, it has been part of my life. So I have to also to do a balance, not to, to be 100% of my time involved in continue to work is not at all. But at least to have some spot, you know, some, I don't know, four, five, six, seven weeks per month, per year uh, maximum. Things like that, you know, to be involved. What I like uh, with um, university of, uh, you know, trying to bring back what I learned and to put at the service of youngest people. And this is something also because of, of this uh, psychological aspect of our conversation. Here we are not talking about career. We are talking about welfare, about uh, your psychological balance. And this is something I know that after 34 years could be something I have to be careful with. So this is why also even now I'm fully happy to be retired because I've other things, painting is one of them, but ought to keep a certain level of balance, continue to be involved in this uh, intellectual, you know, have challenging situation, bringing some experience and being with young people who want to start this career, how to do that. And this is exactly for a, uh, the price we have to pay 
when we have been involved for many years as an international, I do not imagine myself being 100% of my time in south of France, even if it's a nice place. Mediterranean is close. I can do sailing. I can do whatever. But, you know, there's something yeah. in me now. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think there's an element here that, you know, I think only really has come up in recent maybe one or two years, especially since the pandemic had started. And that's when people really start, start talking about the, the mental resilience piece. And I, I wanted to ask you about that because you've been in so many different places and, and started, as you mentioned, in some very sort of austere uh, conditions. And in, in, in the past, we never really focused on it, right, as a coping mechanism, as being able to stay isolated or far away or, or in austere or difficult environments for six months, eight months, whatever the case is. Let's, let's talk a bit about that mental resilience, you know, and that you, you need to have when you're starting out. In your experience, what was that like for you, um, the, the, the sort of mental hardships? And because as much as we've enjoyed the international careers, there is a portion of, you know, separation. There is a portion of isolation. When I arrived in a country recently, I didn't understand the language. I didn't understand the, the, the writing anywhere, completely, completely isolated visually, you know, and also to comprehend and, and to be able to speak. Uh, and there's a certain mental resilience that goes with that. How was that for you? Uh, this is a very good question. When we started the conversation, talking about the way we were starting to work with uh, humanitarian without having all this master requirement, et cetera, et cetera. It was the same things about psychological attention, resilience of people, having the conscience that when you are going to those place, you could be affected yourself you, because it was hard duty station, because you could have seen difficult things. It was not at all part of the vocabulary. You were going mission, coming back, and that's all, and going to another mission. No debriefing, no psychological thing, nothing, nothing, nothing. I notice a low, uh, high level of absorption of alcohol, for instance. You know, not mine. Uh, I was part of, but I was part of the coping mechanism. You, you, I've seen that. I mean, people in the hot duty station and really, and we were not conscious. We were, that was a bad coping mechanism, of course. Little by little, this idea of you being working in a very difficult environment could affect you, became more and more like an evidence. It's exactly the same like sexual harassment on the working space. Now you are talking about that, uh, the you know, prevention of sexual uh, uh, harassment and abuse, but it was not the case. The gender, we were not talking about that 35 years ago. So all those things came together progressively. In my case, I didn't really realize that until something happens to me. And, and this something uh, happening to me was a kidnapping. I was kidnapped. And um, uh, luckily enough, I, I was able to escape to this situation. And because I did escape, of, so that is like the climax of something that could happen to you. I mean, it's not you are under, the, the other thing is you are killed, you know, but kidnapping is something strong. And because I escaped, I was feeling good. I mean, I was a victorious, you know. The guy, they lose, and I won. I was free. So I didn't realize, in fact, I was severely affected by this situation because it's something, you know, you're afraid. But I didn't realize that. And by coincidence, more than one year after this incident, 
having a normal medical routine, not for psychological tension. Suddenly, the doctor asked me some key question. Everybody, nobody, never asked me, and I realized, and I started to cry. And the, and the guy said, "You, you know, you you have something here." And in fact, I was carrying this weight, so of course, it was something strong as an event. But being through this experience myself, I realized that you do not need to have a kidnapping. You just need to be living under stress and you have an impact. And personally, I started to read on that. I started to be more um, like uh, aware of my colleagues. I started to have conversation with them. I started to be part of, you know, be careful and to also to applicate that to me. So this experience for me at the, was benefit at the end uh, because uh, make me one of the agent of helping my colleagues and helping myself. So now I, I'm very conscious of, you know, uh, when I am under stress, I can say that I have a level of, of knowledge of myself, of my body, of my mind. And I know because I've been through, through many, many, many situations. And I would say that it works. It works. Uh, but sometimes it's very difficult. Sometimes, for example, it happens to me of not sleeping for many nights uh, when you are in a crisis and uh, difficult. So it's not perfect. But I think people, they must be conscious. And we need the, the, the oldest the organization to put a framework where we care about the people. It's, it's not good enough to be by your own and say, look, oh, you, you look strong, Kyle. Yeah, you look a strong guy. No, that doesn't make any sense. I've seen, I seen huge guy and uh, affected, and you have seen uh, a small lady uh, being strong. So there is no gender, there is no race on this kind of resilience. But really, we, we must be aware. We have a responsibility for our colleagues. So you do not need to be in charge of uh, psychological attention. You do not need to have a master. You do not need just be aware, you know. And and we are talking about solidarity and empathy. And these are words that come often in my mouth. And this is why I choose to be a humanitarian because I care about people. So you have to care about yourself. So you have to respect people. You have to respect yourself. You know that if you are drinking too much, that means there's something wrong. We know that colleagues around you. So we do not have to wait that the organization will find you a solution. Of course, organizations must put in place framework for prevention and eventually attention if needed. But this is a, a shared responsibility. And for me, has been since my, my personal situation and um, fortunately it happened uh, in 95. So I had like almost uh, 25, 26 years to apply that. So it wake me this uh, attention on the other. But what would happen if I've never had this, this situation? Maybe I wouldn't have been so aware of that. But I think this is a, a field where we have a lot of improvement to do. I know this is not the, the issue of this conversation, but I'm sometimes questioning a little bit the human resource of the organization that are sometimes too administrative and should be also more psychologically caring 
you know, uh, about the staff. And I haven't seen that so often. Uh, you know, relation with human resources, in fact, is you are resources. <laughs> you are not a, 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 a person. So, yeah, they know about your salaries. They know about your rights. They know about your obligations. They know that you have three days of holidays. They know that you don't have your whatever the, uh, the, the, the forms should be sent before them. This they know perfectly. But I think there is still room for improvement to manage and help people. It's difficult. And you see that in the, I would say, normal life with all this movement of Me Too, where women have been uh, harassed, have been raped, have been, uh, and it was so difficult for them to talk about that because also it's complicated. You know, you can be ashamed. You say, oh, well, I'm strong. I don't want to put my career in danger. If I say, you know, I was afraid to be in Mali, maybe they won't tell me, they won't send me in another mission. So you have also this phenomenon of, you know, refraining yourself to discuss and to be ashamed, you know, say, say oh, you are so weak. You come in Mali and you are afraid, ha, 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 you know. Um, and it was a little bit, uh, this is why I'm taking this example of, of me too, of women who, if they talk about I've been raped, people will love or will put the blame on them. And, you know, we, they had to change a lot of the perspective of not, don't be ashamed. You, you have not only the right, but I mean, what happened to you is not correct. And, and sometimes it is, um, I mean, we have a field, I think, to, um, to improve here on, on terms of, so it, we had a lot of improvement, that's true. But um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, with that kind of experience, you know, that's, which, you know, if you're comfortable talking about it, we, you should actually come later on to another show because we're, we're almost at an hour already and we can go into that a bit more. I think that's a that's an incredible and powerful experience and, and also not necessarily in a positive way. Right. So the the thing that I find with because I agree with that is that's a, that's an example of an acute experience. But we often often neglect that chronic stress. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that that you're talking about, because, you know, I spent 26 months in Afghanistan consistently. Yes. And so that was also something that I realized when I went back to my home. I, you know, the decompression that you need to come from that state of mind, uh, it, w it took a lot longer than what I actually had realized. Um, and and yeah. I think that we I can say now safely say now, even uh, having been through a few larger organizations is we still haven't really address these problems. And it's unfortunate because we do see underlying effects at that human resources level, at that staffing level, uh, we, where it comes out in the form of behaviors, right? And not necessarily just may, maybe, there are, yeah, there's coping mechanisms, but also personnel behavior inside the mission, what people are doing, taking, let's say, more risks than what they should is yeah. something we yeah. never talk about because now they're just sort of callous or they, you know, assume everything's going to be fine. And so taking additional risks above and beyond what they should be doing, what's safe or what we think they should be doing. All, you know, these coping mechanisms and these, the way that people deal with these things are coming in in so many different factors that they, it manifests inside the actual mission or the organization in many different ways. Uh, and that's something that I think, you know, as of today, as of this podcast, nobody's fixed yet. Nobody's really gotten a very good answer. I've seen some attempts, but um, it, it, I think that at a sort of a macro level, at a larger level, 
we're not able to get over that sort of stereotype or that stigmatism of saying that this stressful situation is too much for me. And so because of that, the organization can't address it because we still have that sort of idea. And I've seen some of the people that I've seen in my career path so far that I've had sort of the utmost respect for are the ones that look at a situation and say, no, <laughs> you know, and they're like, uh, I'm done. This is not me. This I'm leaving, you know, and they, they just know inherently in their DNA somehow that they're not going to try. They just immediately know this is not for them. And they say, I'm leaving. And I, I respect that so much because I even saw it going when you deploy into sort of these more operational environments and, you know, the back of the aircraft comes down and somebody takes a look and they feel the heat from the desert and they just say, nope, I'm not getting off the plane. I'm going home. Mm-hmm. And it's an immediate decision. There's no questions about it. They are just down to their very core sort of being, understand that this is not the place they want to be. And they, they say no. And I, I deeply respect that. But you know what is interesting is that you're, uh, we, we are talking about place, but there is also position while mm. creating stress. Because in our system, the older you become and the, old, and the more responsibility you will have. I mean, this is the way. Even if you are not a good manager, you can become a manager because this is the way. Your promotion and is not uh, is another UN. Is not is everywhere. I mean, when you become older, what you are expecting is to be promoted, not to be demoted. You know, it's uh, to to have an, and in general is is going not always but to more management. You know, you were a technical. I was a logistician. 33 years ago, uh, digging well in the middle of El Salvador. And uh, at the end, I am the head of an office in Colombia, managing people, talking with minister and president. You know, I'm the head. But this is a very classical evolution. Not everybody will become head of, but almost everybody will be responsible for something. More people, more team, uh, more a bigger budget, bigger whatever. And this is also creating stress. And uh, and in top of that, in in difficult place. I mean, is there is like this addition. I've seen people that were, you know, because thinking about their careers, they wanted to have this job of resident coordinator or being the head of the office or being, you know, and even if these people, they knew deeply inside them, they were incompetent to do that. Because this was a new job. It's very difficult, different, different to be a technical expert and to become the manager of an office. It's, it's a different job, but people, this is the way we are promoting people. And this I've seen most of the tension and the psychological impact I've seen on people were more on this field of people being in charge of, of difficult posts rather than because they were in a difficult place. I mean, or at least it is the same level, you know, uh, and uh, where people are not happy at all. And, uh, you, they are, you know, you can see them. They arrive in the office in the morning. They are, you know, uh, not smiling, uh, uh, unhappy with everybody, doing micromanagement, talking to you in a way you say, well, why are you talking? You know, and creating in the office an environment of stress, this is not created, and this is an excuse that we say, oh, because this place is very complicated. No, 
it's also because they are not competent for this situation. And so you have a level of stress when you are working on this country where you are a little bit prisoner. You are in this country and you have an incompetent boss. This is creating a lot of tension. And you see people on the different places that could be under this level of stress. So this there is also this dimension. I'm not saying that this is a case and the generality. Of course not. Uh, majority of things are working well. But you have also this aspect of difficulty, not only because you are in Afghanistan. No, imagine if you have an, you are in Afghanistan with incompetent colleagues, stress, being your supervisor, putting more stress on you and your job, you know, criticizing you that the PowerPoint presentation is not good. What, why are you using this color and what you are using this font? And on top of that, you are, you are living in, 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 in Kabul. Oh, my friend, <laughs> it's complicated. So you have like different level of, of, yeah, that, that's definitely true. The the environment matters, and and they can be compounding, right? No. So, if you're in a stressful environment and and you're in a stressful location, and everything sort of <laughs> then stacks on top of each other, so it could be very uh, very stressful in many different cases. Yeah. So um, we're we're getting. Uh, we could probably talk for another few hours about this, really. Uh, <laughs> but we're we're getting to to the end of our hour, and I. Yeah. I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. It's really quite insightful. I'd, I'd love to have you back on because I want, you know, there's some of these, some of these really core issues that nobody's talking about, I, I think. And it's just, it's extremely interesting, at least from my perspective and maybe for others in the international community as well. But uh, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, it's it's really been great to have you on the podcast today. If, if, do you have any final tips maybe that you want to, to tell anybody uh, before Look, we leave? Uh, uh, well, good luck. Um, if you want to be working uh, as humanitarian, respect people, respect yourself. That's a basic rule. And um, Kyle, thank you for the invitation. I was really happy to, to participate. Don't hesitate if you want. I'm more than happy to continue to have conversation or whatever you could need from my side. As I said, you know, it's also helpful for me to be involved. So thank you very much and uh, good luck with your mission. Yes, and thank take, you very and, much. And, and take care. <laughs> yes, it's getting a little warm over here, as we say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it, Gerard. And uh, actually, the last thing we'll say is how can anybody reach you if they would like to ask or approach you for any questions on LinkedIn? Is that the best? Or in LinkedIn, yes. Or uh, my... Um, my email address is gomezoffice01, all together, at gmail.com. Okay, perfect. All right, thank you, Gerard. Thank you so much, and we will see you next time.